I do believe the, in the importance of criticism to learn from it as writers and artists, not to position ourselves as superior to the artist who did it, not to position ourselves as arbitrators on the quality of an art form. Fuck that. Right. Criticism comes from the term to draw into crisis. Yeah. And to draw into crisis is just to focus on a conflict or something that you feel unresolved with. And I do believe in the value of criticism when it comes to trying to understand something. Um, but I don't, I don't like this trend that criticism has just become a kind of clawing for status through commiseration. Story Kinetics, where we watch a movie, break it down using story structure, the four acts and the 24 plot points, uh, and we see what we can learn from it. Uh, today, we're going to be doing the movie Dune. Uh, I'm joined by uh, my special guest and one of my best friends, Todd Lindsley. How you doing, man? I'm well, old friend. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing really good. I'm really excited to do this movie. I, I actually probably put way too much time in prep for this, so ah. uh, I think we got a lot of good stuff in store for today. I've always, I've always loved this story. So, yeah. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Uh, he's a fantastic director, writer. He's a part of my brain trust. Uh, Todd is one of the people that I always bring all my ideas to, to kind of run it through, see if they have, uh, if they have legs. Uh, and he's, he's one of my favorite people to collaborate with. He's absolutely creative genius. I, I love working with him. You pretty much said it all. I mean, you can. You're welcome to check my website out, ToddIsFunny.com. And uh, but yeah, I like to talk story and I like to talk comedy. That's the other thing I should mention. Todd is a uh, professional comedian. He's done a lot of uh, hosting at the Improv and stuff, and uh, Upright Citizens Brigade. And he's he's also one of the very few people who can get me laughing so hard that I can't breathe. I'm just in tears. So so uh, today we're uh, uh, we got a few announcements before we jump in. Uh, this is a big announcement I'm really excited about. The, the single most uh, repeated question that I get is, can you go over the four-act structure and the 24 plot points? Um, now, it is covered in my book, Story by Numbers, uh, which is going to be available very soon. I'm very excited about that. But what we're going to be doing is a live event story structure intensive. It's going to be a two-hour uh, event where I'm... Uh, we, we take a kernel of an idea, just a, a raw, um, undeveloped idea. We develop a character around it and uh, a concept. Uh, and then we run it through the whole development process where we apply it to the 4X structure. We come up with all the conflict, the moral imperative, the internal conflict, uh, and develop it all the way through until we have an outline for a complete feature film. And we do this all in the process of about two hours. By the end of the two hours, we will have an outline that we could go take to a, a screenplay. Um, and it, it's intended to kind of give a real working model of how I use this template to develop stories. And, um, I, I've just been getting so much, so many people writing and asking. It's also one of the things that I use when I work with a client. If I get a script, uh, if I'm in a development meeting, I'll go through the process of asking these questions and developing it, uh, until it has a life of its own, until it's something that's ready to be written. So that'll be coming up in January. Uh, be sure and register at uh, cinematicore.com. Subscribe so you can be uh, updated and I'll let you know when the registration opens. Um, and uh, it'll be coming up in January 2024. I'm super excited about it. It'll be a live event, two hours long. And then afterwards, we're going to have a little Q&A. So uh, sign up at cinematicore.com. It'll be a lot of fun. 
I cannot tell you how excited I am about that. And can I say the the storytelling prowess it takes to just be like, you know what, we're just going to make up a story right in front of you, and then we're going to write it down, and I'm going to show you how I do it. Like, that's like, um, as far as writing is concerned, I've never actually seen anybody do that, ever. Mm. So it's exciting, and I, I, I'm really cool. glad you're doing this. Cool. Thanks. Yeah, so join us. Uh, sign up at cinematocore.com. That'll be fun. Um, all right, we so we got a listener question for this week. Um, Todd, do you want to uh, read that for us? Yeah, this comes from Anna Alba. Anna Alba doesn't say where she's from, but uh, or Anna's I assume. Great. Yeah, great. I didn't. I didn't get pronouns, but um, uh, would you give us an example? Is what she says. Would you give us an example of how concrete your plot lines are? I have to confess that I tend to write stuff like she realizes he wanted to commit suicide. It's not very cinematic, though. Do you understand? Uh, do you understand plot points as things your story needs at this moment or as things that actually happen in the world you are creating? I suppose, parenthetical as I'm writing that, that it's both an event that answers a need in the story, I guess. I would find it very useful to have a little example of these 24 plot points in a written form for a famous from a famous film. Of course, I understand that it's just a template. In a nutshell, then, what do you write when you write a plot point? Thanks. Awesome. Uh, Anna, thanks for that question. That was uh, a really good question. Actually, I should have done the listener question first to segue into the <laughs> announcement because yeah. we're going to be doing exactly this. Uh, for two hours and we're going to cover every single one of the 24 plot points and figure out which ones will work for the story and how we can use it to, to structure the story. Um, but, but at the core of that question that I really liked was like, how concrete are these? Do you have to get all 24? Uh, do you have to have four acts or three acts? Do you have to have a midpoint? Do you have to have a low point? And the answer is no, you don't like you, you can, uh, these plot points are there to use as devices that serve the story that you want to tell. Uh, you can have a story without a climax. Technically, you could probably even have a story without a dramatic question. The question becomes, what is the story you want to tell? Why do you want to tell it? Now, at the core, my my personal approach to story is creating dramatic tension. And dramatic tension comes from getting the audience to project their mind forward to anticipate some kind of consequence, uh, something that, um, uh, some problem that they're trying to solve. And I, I focus that tension around problem solving or the way, um, Sorkin says it, uh, I worship at the altar of intention and obstacle. The character wants something, something is conflicting. And we're asking the question, will they solve that problem? Um, so that, that I consider kind of the core story question everything else is an expansion of it if you have a midpoint if you have a low point if you have an epiphany if you have an arc all those things are extra tools in the toolbox that you can use if your story calls for it and also if your story doesn't call for it no need to force it in i, I see a lot of um writing consults and uh gurus who, who tend to say that you know these are the dimensions your story needs as the artist as the writer, as the, uh, the storyteller, you decide what your story needs because you decide what it is you're trying to convey to your audience. 
and then your audience, you're, you're there to dream the dream and your audience is there to share it and interpret it and butcher it. <laughs> um, so yeah, so there's a lot of flexibility. Again, this is a prototype and a template. And even Anna mentioned that she, she gets that it's a template. It is, it's modular in the sense that you can take pieces of it that you need and make it work. But don't let anyone tell you this is what you have to do unless they're a producer who's paid you to write it. Then you've signed a contract to give them the story that they want. Um, but that's that's different when it comes to developing your own sensibilities as a writer and, uh, and a storyteller. You're there to develop your own sensibilities and your own taste so that you can bring that taste and those sensibilities into the story. Uh, Todd, what do you think? How would you how would you respond to Anna? Uh, well, I mean, Joseph Campbell said, follow your bliss. I mean, yeah. I, I don't think that was he was the original quote in that, but he liked to use that a lot because he would talk about, you know, where does the story lead you? Wherever you want it to. Uh, ultimately, the 24 plot point system, you know, I mean, I recognize it from Sid's field, Sid Fields. Um, and yeah, I do start most of my stories with writing down 24 lines and going, uh, and, and I have a tendency to want to put, and, and maybe this is a little bit of an uh, insight into what I do, I like to do the turn of a scene. Um, mm. I like very much uh, when I'm when I'm trying to. Uh, I like to look at each plot point as a rhetorical argument, and so mm. one of the things that I'll do is I will say, "She likes the color blue." Slash, blue betrays her. You know what I mean? It's like you feel like you've got one thing and then you've got a converse. You, you've got an um, opposites. And I like to play with opposites, especially in themes with polarities and opposites. But basically, uh, that's what I'll try to do is kind of get uh, get your character to one, on one thing on top of the other so that you're not writing uh, non-scenes. You know, I mean, yeah, I mean, we've all written scenes that go absolutely nowhere, which is fine. You can totally do that. Uh, again, follow your bliss. But what I like to do, because I very much am a pattern person, I follow a lot of patterns. And so what I try to do is I try and find um, what they know at the beginning and what they know at the end. And so that we can kind of see that there's been a turn of some sort. Mm. And that's also as a director, what I'll do is I'll look at something visually and decide, okay, at the beginning, um, I use a lot of colors. So uh, at the beginning, they feel pink. At the end, they feel a little bit green. So uh, so that you can, again, rhetorically collide a little bit. Again, conflict is in everything, polarities and opposites. Um, but yeah, that's, that's my advice. Uh, just from the be very beginning. But the truth is, is if you are being led... If you're like writing the first scene, you're like, oh my gosh, I need to write this, then go and write it. Anything that pushes you into writing the scene, stop mm -hmm. your plot point and write the scene. Anyway, that's 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 kind of my insight in the whole thing. Yeah, I like I like the color metaphor. That that's really nice. Um, another another dimension to the question that she asked was, uh, how do you make it cinematic? Where having a realization, it's kind of a different question, but how do you make a realization cinematic? Um, and, and that's something that uh, we are definitely going to be going into uh, when it comes to um, the, the live, the story structure intensive. Um, because 
but the, the principle that we want to get across is that to make it cinematic means to make it a visual, emotional, immersive experience. Um, and ideally, we're not depending on dialogue to do that. All too often, especially writers, we tend to use dialogue as a crutch. And the most powerful dialogue is 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 motivated by uh, intention and subtext uh, to inform it. But the most powerful kind of realizations is where you reveal information uh, through conflict. You let the conflict uh, expose a dimension of a character. Um, now, when it comes to like good examples, um, um, the the one obvious one I can think of is how Shyamalan. Uh, spoilers, how Shyamalan and Sixth Sense revealed <laughs> that Bruce Willis is a ghost. Um, he, he did it through a series of shots. Uh, like, for example, the ring dropping and rolling to the ground and then the, the gunshot wound and all those things. Uh, those moments uh, are the culmination of several setups. They're the payoff to several different setups. Um, so that's a good way that he revealed it through imagery and he never had to say, Oh my God, I'm a ghost. I'm dead. You know, he, he built it up enough so that the moment when you visually see it, it conveys it. Um, but that's, that's a specific revelation. Uh, there's lots of ways to cinematically convey ideas and our, remember our job, the, the cinematic imperative that I teach in my, um, storyboarding class is that we, that we have two questions that we have to ask with every single shot. That is what information is being conveyed and how do we feel about it? And how do we feel about it is what makes the information personal, relevant, and immersive. Um, it, that is more important than the information we're presenting. The way we feel about it is what keeps us connected to the cinematic experience. If we're just delivering information, especially if it's characters delivering information in the form of dialogue, it almost never has the emotional impact um, that it needs to. We, we have to present it through conflict. Um, and the conflict is what makes it external. It's what makes it emotional and cinematic. But thanks for that question, Anna. I, I really appreciate that. Let's, uh, let's do some follow-up with that. Uh, so today we're going to be covering the movie Dune. You've got a story inside you. A screenplay no one has ever thought of. A novel you've been rolling around inside your coconut for years. Maybe you wrote a few pages and stalled out. Maybe you even wrote a whole draft but don't feel confident it's any good. Or maybe you've been writing draft after draft after draft and slamming into writer's blocks or dead ends or wandering into the weeds. Maybe you just have a few scenes centered around some dope high concept but you don't know how to develop a character. Much less construct a plot that would generate a character arc. Maybe all you have is some simmering spark of an idea. Just a simple desire to write a story this book is for you story by numbers is a step-by-step -step process it gives you the tools to construct a plot that fleshes out your story with characters so real so compelling so multi-dimensional you begin to wonder if you're possessed story by numbers is composed of three parts Part 1 gives you an overview of the 4-act structure, 24 plot points, 8 sequences. Part 2 is a 35-question examination of your story that will guide you through developing and outlining your novel or screenplay into the 4-act template. Part 3, well, that's just next-level dope shit. 
This isn't just another book on theory. Story by Numbers is a diagnostic toolkit for developing and fine-tuning your story. You'll also want to pick up the Story by Numbers workbook. For each story you're writing, you'll need a journal to organize your ideas. The Story by Numbers workbook is a companion notebook that walks you through the process as you outline your story and guide you through each phase of development. From constructing your protagonist's internal drive to plotting conflicts that expose character to composing scenes that drive compelling stories. By the time you've completed your story by number workbook, you'll be ready to finish your manuscript. Everyone knows there are no rules for writing a great story. Now that we've gotten that out of the way, here are the rules. Story by numbers. Write more, better, faster, doper. So today we're going to be covering the movie Dune. Todd, you want to give us a little bit of a setup for what we're talking about today? Yeah, the um, summary is a noble family becomes embroiled in a war for control over the galaxy's most valuable asset, while its heir becomes troubled by visions of a dark future. Nice. Yeah. Originally adapted by uh, uh, Frank Herbert, uh, or not by Frank Herbert, uh, originally written by Frank Herbert, he was adapted. Okay, so it was adapted from the book uh, by three writers. Uh, John, I don't even know how to pronounce this. It's Spates? Spates. Spates? Yeah. Spates? Yeah. Okay. Uh, John Spates, who got top billing on that, Danny, uh Denny Villeneuve and Eric Roth. Yeah. Uh, which, uh, I mean, these are really heavy hitters with screen screenplays. Mm. So uh, John Spates, he's the one who wrote the Prometheus script. Oh, yeah, yeah. Fantastic script that um, Damon Lindelof was hired to come in and do a, a, a kind of a different take on it, but definitely pulled, like it was basically they kind of co-wrote the Prometheus script. Mm. And that, that John Spates, if you can, uh, you can download it, the PDF of it. It's a really, really fantastic script. I, I learned a lot from it. Uh, and then um, Eric Roth, uh, he's a uh, uh, Forrest Gump, The Insider, Curious Case of Benjamin Button. So this guy's great. He's classic. Yeah. Uh, so this is a really fantastic uh, heavy hitter uh, screenwriting group. Yeah. Or group of writers that worked on this. The estimated budget for Dune was uh, $165 million, mm-hmm. and it grossed in the U.S. and Canada $108, approximately $108.3 million. Uh, opening weekend was $41 million, mm-hmm. and the gross worldwide uh, was $402 million which is it's it's kind of interesting to see that worldwide the distribution really is uh compiling quite a bit there it used to be that um the u.s gross was generally pretty um pretty it's much the bulk, the, of the, the box office the yeah. bulk of the box office yeah and it's, it's just not anymore which is kind of wonderful actually yeah it's interesting i mean it, it's definitely affecting the kind of stories that um, the studios are making because they're they're not just looking at the the American audience to depend on their uh, box office. They're they're looking internationally, which is definitely playing into poli- the politics of the storytelling. It, it's much much broader audience, so they tend to f- favor stories that can be uh, shipped uh, 
externally or internationally. Um, I'm kind of surprised by that opening weekend. Uh, only yeah. 41 million for a $165 million budget is massive. That's, that's yeah. a huge budget. Yeah. And it's all on the screen. They didn't, they didn't waste any of it. Um, but 41 million, that's, I know that's got to make some of them, some of the studios, uh, worried a little bit. Yeah. But that international gross really paid off. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on top of that, the, the domestic, the 108 million still didn't even reach their budget as a full box office, like 40 million is not a great opening, but there's still plenty of hope. And then it only achieved a hundred, 108 million. But the fact that it got to 400 million, uh, that, that saved the film. Um, it's just surprising. I, th- I thought it was a much bigger opening. Uh, when I, when I first saw it, I was blown away. I immediately, yeah. I was super excited for it from the beginning. I'm a huge Villeneuve fan and, uh, and I'm a huge Dune fan. It, let me start off by saying also that I'm I'm I've only read the first book. I've uh, engaged in a lot of commentary, and I have a lot of friends that are super uh, Dune scholars. So <laughs> I've learned a lot from them. Um, but only, I've only, honestly only read the first book. And today's exercise is mostly looking at if you were given this book, what what did Villeneuve bring to this property? Um, that structured it in such a way that can can convert it to the cinematic universe uh, that that's having the success that it is. Um, it's more an exercise in how do you adapt something that is iconic in the sci-fi space um, to a cinematic universe and and give it to an audience that isn't necessarily interested in sci-fi or isn't necessarily interested in, in the the Dune property. And I think Villeneuve was very successful at converting it to. Uh, a really compelling cinematic story um cool any any other thoughts uh got a really phenomenal cast yeah just an incredible cast rebecca ferguson has really come up as an incredible uh talent um yeah, and she she plays crazy plays this with such grave intensity that i just uh, i absolutely adore her performance in this yeah um sure. The I also just uh, just to add a uh, a little bit of pepper to to the recipe here. I have only read the first book of Dune, and I have read it twice. Once when I was a teenager, uh, and then yeah. it was uh, about a year after the movie came out. I read it again, um, and so uh, the adaptation. Uh, and any of those decisions being made for this particular project, um, I would be fascinated to know uh, some of the realities of that. However, I am not an, an authority on on that universe at all. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's I, I think it's important just to, to point out the fact that this is about the adaptation of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, you know, I, I have some idea of like uh, where the story goes and uh, how, it, mm-hmm. how it's affected. But let's use this as an exercise to really understand how would you take this incredible monolith of a story and adapt it to a movie franchise, which which is exactly what they're doing. So the first thing we want to do is we want to dive into the story structure. We want to identify the major landmarks, the major turning points, the culminations, the act breaks, so that we can begin to understand uh, how it is that Villeneuve took this uh, behemoth of a story and uh, h- helped people sit through two and a half hours 
in the theater covering what is just a vast universe. Um, so the first thing we want to do is look at uh, story structure. And whenever we're looking at story structure, the first question I want to ask is uh, the dramatic question. Okay. So, so this movie is two and a half, almost uh, two hours and 35 minutes. Um, and the dramatic question is the spine of the whole dramatic structure. It's the problem that the main character is setting out. The protagonist is setting out to solve. Um, now this film originally, when I, when I walked out of the theater, I, I was thinking about structure and trying to identify like the landmarks. And the first thing I came to is, you know, this is only covering the first half of the first book of Dune. And because of that, um, you know, I was a huge fan. I'm a huge fan of uh, David Lynch. I love his work. And as a kid, I loved the first Dune. Um, I still love the first Dune. It's a completely different take. David Lynch's Dune is a completely different take than Villeneuve's Dune. And uh, the way he structured it was he, he spent a lot of time on the first half of the book and then did this extremely extended cut. And then the studio was like, there's no way we can release this. It's like four hours long. So they compressed all the second half of the book into basically a montage for the last, you know, half hour. And you never felt like you got the full immersion. And the thing I think that Villeneuve fought for was we have to give it the time to breathe. We've got to let the, the drama unveil itself with the proper pacing so that we feel the major turning points of the book. Um, so I think with the, uh, uh, with the story structure, my first impression was that uh, the the first Dune, um, w one of the big responses that people gave was the first Dune, they felt a little like, uh, like they didn't quite get everything they wanted. They were like, this was just a teaser. Now, this is a two and a half hour movie. And in two and a half hours, he covered a lot of ground. And my thought, my first thought was, well, all he did was give us a one act. And a one act is simply where you present the characters, you build the world, you learn the, the uh, rules of the universe, and then you present the impetus and the problem. And it ends, the first act ends when the character sets out to address the impetus, when they set out on the journey to solve the big problem, which is the, the, the conflict of the story. So my first impression was that uh, the entire two and a half hours ended with one act. But going back and reviewing it, um, I now am more convinced that he still has a very unconventional structure. I think he still did it in a really brilliant way of adapting it, but he did it in a way that um, that, that I think he, he took what Herbert presented and adapted it to still make it compelling uh, using four, four conventional acts but breaking them up in really unconventional ways. Um, so we still want to identify the spine of the dramatic question. So for Dune part one, just Dune part one, not the entire series, not the whole book, but just for the feature film Dune part one, what is the dramatic question, Todd? For Dune part one, See, I had I had something prepared. Um, one of the things that, just to comment on what you had just said, one of the things that I had worked with a gentleman who 
kind of a mentor of mine, he um, he talked about how every scene within every event within a scene is an act. Every scene within a an act is an act, and so everything is broken down into these molecular acts. And so one of the things that I think in this case is a really good example of this is that ultimately when you break events down into a beginning, a middle, and an end, um, you can, as an organism, you can see its, um, its tissue, its organ, its organ system. You know, you see what I mean? Like it's, um, so you're, kind of a, you're, you're going from the 10,000 foot view to the twenty, yeah. to the five thousand, to the mm-hmm. hundred foot view, to the street level view, to the cellular view, to down the cellular, to the cellular yeah. view. It's all every cell metabolizes as well as every. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and I think um, when we're talking about a story that has such cultural and religious implications, it's important to recognize that even though you can pull it out to this very large. Um, uh, epic uh, science fiction story, this opera, um, you can, on the very granular view, ask uh, the question, this little boy, I mean, he's T- Timothy Chalamet, and I know a lot of his audience wants to look at him as, you know, he's, but he's a, he's kind of a rich kid um, who has been raised to believe that he's uh he's special and um and and i guess to a certain degree i kind of think that this is a really great story for this time um in our our culture because um in our own uh in our own lives we have kind of been raised that way as well like with great information and great psychology um uh and our biological imperative uh just because you know as we were going through dune i you know i i wanted to look more at joseph campbell's kind of mythological approach to things just because he's he's the guy who uh um kind of tried to create an abstract of archetypes and and uh, uh, symbols and uh, so I mean, can I stop you real quick? Longer. Oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I, I just kind of want to ra- I want to tie you in. I feel like you're diving into the deep end, and want to tie uh, you in. I want to pull you back into the structure, and, and uh, just identifying the specific landmarks of just how we structured it. Then we're going to dive into a lot of the okay. themes and metaphors and the lessons we can extrapolate from it. Okay. Um, so I want, I, I want to identify this spine question. What is the dramatic question? What is the, so the dramatic question is posed as, will the protagonist achieve X? Yeah. Will he, so will he rule the Arrakis? Okay. So that's your dramatic question is, will he rule Arrakis? Yeah. That's that's really interesting. Okay. That's such a great question. Okay. So, um, so the protagonist is Paul. Atreides mm-hmm. uh, achieve is we look for a verb to uh, fill in for achieve. And then X rule. is the objective or the conflict. So uh, rule Arrakis. 
uh, and that's the context or the objective. Well, the, con- um, the conflict is implied. The conflict is the fact that this is a completely wild environment. How are you going to control slash rule an environment that he has absolutely no control over? So let me push back on that. So with the dramatic question, that is the problem the character is setting out to solve. It's it's mm-hmm. not implied so much as it is there overtly consciously. That's why it's the conscious desire. They're mm-hmm. overtly setting out to try and solve this specific problem. Yeah. Um, now, I, I agree with you that in the case of the Dune, especially the Dune novel, Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the dramatic question is, is will Paul rule Arrakis? Yeah. Um, that's, it's a really good identification, but I think what Villeneuve did was something very clever. He broke it down into a, a substructure, uh-huh. um, that this has a separate specific dramatic question. That's kind of a sub question that will get us to the larger dramatic question. I do mm-hmm. think the, the larger dramatic question is present uh, in this movie, uh, when it comes to setting up the rest of the series, but just within the part one, um, he doesn't he doesn't answer that question of will Paul rule Arrakis. Instead, uh, he asks a very specific question that is answered in this two and a half hour uh, part one piece. And, will he uh, meet Zendaya? I mean, ultimately. Uh, because my thing, with, okay, and and you're probably right. I have no problem with, again, like I said, like you know how matter is created with atoms. Atoms are created with yeah. molecules. Molecules yeah. are, you know, it, it's 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 all part of the same thing. Which I understand specifically what you're doing is you're trying to um, academically explore this specific. Um, yeah, we want to identify the structure by the story. strategies that the character mm-hmm. makes. So uh, the plot, which is different from uh, – the the plot is the strategies the character used to uh, solve a problem. Yeah. And then so, all of the events and the conflict are going to the inner conflict, which is the uh, – the inner conflict is the unconscious drives, the Achilles heel, the moral imperatives. But we use the plot to identify how they address conflict. Right. The dramatic Uh, question is the spine of that plot. Right. And I would actually challenge you to leave this stuff in the podcast, by the way. Um, Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's all going in. Okay. So because I I don't want this to be an aside because it's it's honestly very good. The – ultimately, my question of will he be accepted by the Fremen? Will he – uh, will he be recognized by the locals as their savior? I forget what it's called again. Lisan al Gaib. Yeah. The what? The Lisan al Gaib. Their word for their uh, their chosen Ooh, one. The their chosen one. Their well, prophet. I guess the question would be: Is is he the chosen one? Um, and I mean, they do. Oh, again, the, let's look at dramatic you. question. Dramatic question is: Will the protagonist achieve X? Is he the chosen one? Is not the dramatic question. It's a question that is imp- that's presented in the story, and we're all looking to see if sure. that's the outcome. So what I would suggest is I go back to the original dramatic question is, will he rule slash control Arrakis? Because the dramatic question answers him saying, if he's going to, it's going to be very different than what he imagined it would be. Because- Good. I, I do think that that question is posed uh, – in the story, but it's not answered in the story. And Villeneuve 
was very clever. Let me let me take a stab at presenting what my case is for okay. the dramatic. Okay. I, I love it. Yeah, let's do it. So the uh, so the uh, the dramatic question. Villeneuve found a clever way to take the two and a half hours and say there is a question that is asked that is answered in the story. Okay. And it actually becomes the whole structure for the entire first part. And once you identify that dramatic question, the whole movie takes on very clear, specific turning points and different specific strategies. Um, now, le- before I say this, I, I do want to say the fact that, you know, this was, uh, this is Frank Herbert wrote it in one of the seminal um, sci-fi uh, space operas that gave rise to star Wars and, and is pretty much influenced arguably every other sci-fi novel out there and probably fantasy mm-hmm. too. Um, but, but it also, he published it in a time before there were like the conventions of like um, YA. Um, he wasn't writing a YA book. He was writing uh, a space epic that uh, had just a vast amount of characters, a huge universe. Um, and because of that, Paul has always kind of been, Paul Atreides has always been the, the protagonists um, and the, the first book in particular follows that, you know, like you're saying, the Joseph Campbell uh, hero's journey um, so that later it can completely subvert it and undermine it. But that first, that first book is all about uh, the rites of passage to, uh, to becoming that hero. Yeah. Um, but because of that, Frank Herbert wrote Paul Atreides for most of the, most of the book Um as a uh, a passive character, he yeah, doesn't have much will of his own, and he doesn't have a lot of he doesn't have objectives. He has desires, but he doesn't actually act on anything for most of the first half of the book. There are a few scenes where he has some trials, but it's still in the context of he's being dragged this direction, dragged this direction. There's no right. protagonist, active character. Mm-hmm. But Villeneuve found a very clever way to activate him and I don't believe it for a second. <laughs> and the way he did that was by structuring it with a, an impetus and a dramatic question with a okay. climax that takes place in this part one movie. So tell I would say, tra- tell me what it is. <laughs> so the, the dramatic question is, will Paul create an alliance with the Fremen? Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. And oh, because that, he, he obsesses over it. He obsesses over it so much at the beginning. He does obsess. He's he's deeply preoccupied with the Fremen. That's and true. And the impetus is the moment where his father says the the secret to ruling Arrakis is not being oppressors, but forming an alliance with the Fremen. See, and that's always what I kind of thought. I mean, as far as the dramatic question is concerned, is I mean the Fremen are elemental to him ruling Arrakis because he literally the Fremen are the soul of the of the uh, of the planet or what you know the entity and, and so in order for him to do that he would definitely have to in order for him to achieve the objective of ruling Arrakis he would need to yeah so I'm so right in the, yeah so in the uh, in the movie that takes place about yes you're always right uh, so about 15 <laughs> minutes into the movie that's when he has the conversation with his father. Uh, Leto, uh, 
where that's where he says, look, it's very important what we have to do. The secret to understanding the proper way to rule Iraq is not the way the Harkonnens are doing it, but the proper way to rule Iraq is, is to build an alliance with these people. They have a sacred relationship with the sandworms. All of spice is the product of the sandworms. If we can harness desert power, then we can rule Arrakis and transcend anything the Harkonnens have done. And what, um, what, and he's, so his secret to doing that is making an alliance with the Fremen. And so he presents that as this is the problem. This is the opportunity ah, we have. You jerk. That is so <laughs> true. Dang it. So that's his, that's the impetus where you present the problem. But the dramatic question okay. is not posed until the protagonist sets out on the journey to solve that problem. So when does the dramatic question, when do we go from act one to act two? When do we cross the threshold into the journey, the odyssey of solving the problem of the impetus? Me? Yeah. When is oh. that? Um, let's see. Based on, because I was going to say that the second act starts literally on Arrakis. Um, I agree with you. I agree with you. So uh, I believe this is... Go ahead. Yeah. I I believe the second act begins when they do the migration to Arrakis. That whole uh, crossing the threshold. Mm -hmm. And the way they cross the threshold, I think Villeneuve tapped into a really interesting metaphor that we're going to talk about in a little bit. So I would argue that the dramatic... So the, uh, the dramatic question is posed right at about half an hour. Which is right on target. Most dramatic questions that usually the first act is about 30 minutes long, generally speaking. A two-hour movie, 30 minutes long, is two and a half hours, but still he manages to keep that pacing really quick. Now, I've heard some arguments saying that um, Dune is a slow movie, a slow burn. I don't get that personally. Every single scene is at the average scene length is about two minutes. So these scenes are like really well structured. Really they move hungry. quickly. They turn quickly, but they build in this kind of uh, gradual tension, and uh, and culminate at really powerful moments. And it has a very unconventional structure. So I get why people would feel off, but I think it's extremely successful. And knowing Villeneuve, I think he is going to successfully take that structure and apply it to the whole arc of the story and really make it powerful. Um, so that dramatic question happens at 30 minutes and then the impetus, uh, where, uh, Leto, uh, presents the, the problem of making an alliance with the Fremen at 15 minutes, again, prototypically right on target for the impetus. Um, and so the dramatic question is the question, will he create an alliance with the Fremen? What is the climax? What is the answer to that question? Will well, he? The, yes or no? That's that's the fight. That's that's him confronting. Which fight? Um, the fight between uh, him and the. Um, what's his name? Jamis is his character. Jamis. Oh, okay, Jamis. So so Jamis is the fremen that challenges him, and why is that? I agree with you. That is the climax. But why is that the climax? Um. How does that answer the question of the dramatic question? Because, okay, so this reminds me of uh, uh, a song that I used to sing when I was a teenager uh, by Momus Curry. He's saying, yeah. she must take my knife. 
<laughs> so, yeah. um, it, it, in him, uh, now, I mean, there's a lot of lore to this whole thing, which, um, but, uh, when he, uh, did you say Jamis? Jamis. Jamis. Uh, so when he, when he does in Jamis, uh, he, what he does is he proves that he is an equal with, uh, because the Fremen are an egalitarian society, they all have to basically take care of themselves in order to be together um, and be accepted. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Jamis, uh, he would have to basically prove that he is uh, worthy or um, equal in ability uh, as as one of the Fremen. Yeah, and, and what's interesting is that the direct result of him killing Jamis is right after that. Um, we have Stilgar who comes and says, you are one of us now. It's blood for blood. You have taken his life and now you will come and replace him. Yeah. So now he has been adopted into the tribe after passing through this trial. And it's specifically a trial. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it, or, uh, or you can call it an ordeal but it's an ordeal that serves as a trial. Um, and so he becomes, so it ends with him. And this literally the last five minutes of the, or the last almost three minutes after that, there's only about four more shots in the movie That's where true. he walks off in line with all the Fremen into the, the, the desert path. Yeah. True. Um, so great. So we've identified that we've got the impetus 15 minutes, the dramatic question, will he make an alliance with a Fremen? The dramatic or the climax, the answer to that is yes, he will. Uh, by killing Jamis, he's adopted into the tribe. Um, okay, so uh, from there we want to identify the midpoint and the low point. Uh, once we get the we got the full spine, now we want to see kind of the ups and downs of the journeys of the protagonists and uh, the supporting characters. Uh, so, what would you say the midpoint is? I, I, I'm comfortable with the low point. Um, can I say that, or are you, you? No, okay we're going to go to the low, we'll go to the low point after the midpoint. We always do the midpoint. Well, it, generally we look at the midpoint because uh, I have third, to re, I have to kind of reevaluate my yeah observation. Like once you understand the dramatic question, a yeah. lot of the other things start to line up with like, oh, okay, if that's the objective, then the strategy changes here now. The midpoint, yeah. the second act is all about the first strategy is where we get to see a lot of the strengths of the character. Then the midpoint comes in and says, oh, you don't even know the size of the problem. It's much bigger than you think. The trap door opens beneath them and they're suddenly thrown. Uh, well, the Harkonnens invading would definitely be part of or an introduction into the low point. But the midpoint, as I um, my kind of uh, compass for the midpoint is specifically where if the story were to end there, it would feel, um, uh, it would feel like there was a, a culmination there that would, it would feel like, mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So everything's good, but it's ultimately one of the worst is just a rule of thumb. One of the worst things that could possibly happen, which is they are at the point where they must feel comfortable where they are. And then the low, and then once they feel comfortable where they are, 
that's when it the story takes a dump. Yeah, um, I agree with you. I I think the Harkonnen attack is the midpoint of yeah. of the of part one. I also think it's the impetus of the entire novel. Mm-hmm. But for this for this feature, the part one, the midpoint is uh, the Harkonnen attack. And the interesting thing is that happens um, at exactly an hour 15, which oh, is wow. the midpoint of the entire feature of the feature of part one. Um, so that Harkonnen attack happens at an hour 15. And uh, so because of that, the first strategy, when they arrive on Dune, the strategy is, all right, let's see what our resources are. Let's start making contacts with the local tribes. Uh, let's meet with Stilgar. Uh, Shout out Mapes becomes part of the house. Uh, there are certain, um, uh, the, the, the local Fremen start to, uh, the locals start to acknowledge or uh claim that Paul is the Lisan al-Gaib and all these, all these things are kind of like, okay, these are the steps you would take uh, in inheriting a new um, duchy or a new dukedom and um, uh, or a fief. And what they're doing is all those steps are successful, but they're seeing the size of the problem because they're seeing that there are attempts on Paul's life. Mm -hmm. uh, There are assassins among them the um, spice harvesters are sabotaged. Um, and so everything is, is uh, it's not what they're expecting it to be, but there's still, it, it hasn't gone to hell yet. Once yeah. the Harkonnen comes in, it's gone to hell. That, that devastating moment where Leto's like, I thought we, I thought we'd have more time. Just, you, you feel that sense of just growing dread and doom. And that, so when the Harkonnens arrive, you're, uh, it's just shit your pants time. Yeah. <laughs> um, cool. And then, so from the midpoint, we want to track the low point. So uh, we got, you know, dramatic question, the climax midpoint, everything takes a major turn. And then low point hits the lowest point of the film, the emotional lowest point, which causes a change in strategy. Usually. Um, what would you say the low point is for this? I don't want, uh, I don't want to say it. You said you were pretty confident in it. Let's hear it. Is when Idaho dies. Okay, that's interesting. Why do you think it's when Idaho dies? The low point is where where um, Chalamet is. Uh, I, I, again, I'm terrible with character names. Um, I'm glad you're here because I, I, I never remember any of that stuff. Um, yeah. Remember, Chalamet is playing Paul Atreides, who's much younger than Chalamet. Paul yeah. Okay, so Idaho, Duncan Idaho gives. I love Duncan Idaho, by the way. And the only reason why I remember that is because the B-52s have a song called Your Own yeah. Private Idaho, which is literally what Duncan is, is Paul Atreides' Private Idaho. He's uh, funny. played by he, Jason Momoa, charismatic as uh, fuck. Oh, my um, gosh. Do you not want to just hang out with Duncan Idaho? I don't know about yeah. Jason Momoa. Like, I, I, I mean, oh, I would. I, I, I hang out with Jason Momoa, but oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, but I, I don't want to pretend like I know who he is. I just, um, yeah. he, he was just, he is such a great comfort to Paul. He couldn't possibly go through the next bit until, uh, Idaho is gone because then he's truly like, if he's going, he can't possibly meet the Fremen with Idaho. He can't do it because Idaho would stand between them. 
and he would yeah. never be accepted by the Fremen. So it has to be Idaho has to be cleared out of the way. But it's also the kind of hope that he did have as a royal, as a, as a what I'd said before, the rich kid who's mm-hmm. like, well, I got my guy. He's he's gonna he'll protect me. I'm I'm going through the desert. Uh, here's my guy. We'll be fine. Then he's out. It's rough. I mean, honestly, for me, that's that's where he loses his hope of, oh, crap, my calculation is completely different now. Yeah. Like, I'm going to have to live the rest of my life without this comfort or feeling of um, protection. I mean, his mom's pretty, uh, uh, you know, his mom's no slouch. No, she's a, she's a, yeah, yeah she's a badass. Yeah. Like she, she is, she totally is. Yeah. But, but, uh, there's something about, you know, having those protections for him, uh, to feel very, uh, um, to feel protected, to feel safe. And he ultimately has to enter the desert, not feeling as safe because ultimately if he were to, um, have that fight with Jamish, Idaho would have stepped in front of him anyway. Mm. Yeah, probably he wouldn't have. Even so he couldn't possibly have moved on to what your the answer to your dramatic question because Idaho would be the fremen. Yeah, and he'd have to either kill Duncan Idaho or he'd have to you know he would have to kill somebody. But if he okay. didn't do it, let me let him. me push back on you a little bit. I I think you're making okay. really really good points. Okay about emphasizing the importance of Idaho, but I think it's undercutting what the, what the structure of it is, especially as it relates to strategy okay. um, and, and the emotional arc of, okay. of the character. Um, it's your show, Adam. I just, you know, I just, <laughs> I just live here, you know, I just live here. Uh, yeah. So I, I would argue that Leto dying, uh, Duke Leto, when he that dies. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's the amazing scene where we just know that Paul and Jessica know that the, uh, that Leto is dead. They're in that tent underground, uh, in the dune, literally in the dunes, in the womb of the dunes. And they, he unwraps the ring of his father and takes it and squeeze it in his palm. That moment is the low point because from that point on, there is a new strategy. Like there okay. is a new way that he has to evolve. Whether Duncan is involved or not, he has uh, a very clear strategy to achieve um, his uh, his alliance with the Fremen. Okay, so let me just let but, me just add to that because Campbell is going to say this would be his darkness. That would be the darkness that he was in, um, and then he mean, would. T- Belly of the whale. The belly of the whale. Exactly. He's he he is yeah. literally in the belly of the whale. But however, he talks about how the alternate world is going to be water. However, water. There's no water. There's no yeah. water on Arrakis, and so he they had to find a very clever way of making it so that. Okay, let, we're, we're going to dive into that. Water. We're going to dive into that. But first. Yeah, right. you're, you're jumping to theme. Let's let's stick to plot structure. Stick then plot. we'll use the plot structure to inform. Stick theme. to plot. Okay, sharpen my pencils. Um, yeah, no, okay. I'm gonna. So I would say Leto dying is that low point. Leto okay, yeah. which okay. with Leto dying, there there is there's only about 
20 minutes between the midpoint to the low point. Okay. And it's the midpoint is halfway through a two and a half hour movie, which means the midpoint or the low point comes at an hour 40, hour 35, hour 40, mm. which is interesting. So that means we have almost a whole other hour and uh, where we explore. But I, but I think that that structure um, uh, was, I think that it's a very clever structure. It's very unconventional. Yeah. It's probably what created that feeling of uh, a lot of people felt like it reached a certain emotional culmination. And then we still watched a journey for another hour. I, I think it's a brilliant maneuver on Villeneuve's part. And we're going to talk about why, but um, what's interesting is this, the way he structured it, there's one other plot point that he used to emphasize. And we talked about this uh, last week with, um, with signs uh, with uh, Adam William Cahill uh, where the uh, there was a, an epiphany and the epiphany is associated with a character arc, but it's also a plot point. Um, he's usually the, the plot, the epiphany of a character arc happens uh, as a direct result of the low point, but lots of structures can break it and they'll have it at different points. Mm-hmm. And this is one where Villeneuve used the epiphany as a plot point separate from the low point. Um, and I would say that the, the epiphany moment is, uh, when he is flying the ornithopter, uh, he and his mother, Jessica are flying the ornithopter and he flies directly into the storm. And he has that vision of Jamis as a friend and an instructor. Um, and, uh, so the moment where he has the, it's the star Wars vision where he says, let go, allow yourself to let fate take over. And he deliberately lets go, lets go of the controls in the ornithopter and the, it just flies through the storm. It's a beautiful metaphor mm-hmm. for um, Paul's inner conflict. And it's also a, a, a Villeneuve uses it as a plot point as well. So that epiphany plays a key role into establishing Paul's strategies, again, to solve the problem of how does he create an alliance with the Fremen? Uh, so from there, uh, we're getting a strong layout of the land of, of where some of the different landmarks are. And the big first landmark uh, that we usually go to last is the hook. What is the hook for uh, Dune Part 1? Oh, man. Let's see. Let me throw in one cool thing. I think this is part of the hook, but it's also Villeneuve. It shows how uh, I love it so much because before you even – roll the um the studio cards the title cards that have all the you know studio logos. oh that yeah the pair yeah okay yeah you you have the um uh the voice of the sadukar monk yeah and it says dreams are messages from the deep yeah and it, like the i love that so much because it speaks directly to the theme it also speaks to a theme that villeneuve has dedicated his entire career to his whole body of work explores this idea of dreams, free will, and propaganda, which we're going to get into today. Um, okay. So from there with title cards, and then we hear, we have this opening scene. Do you remember what the opening scene is? I am. I'm having a hard time recalling right now. Okay. So it's that opening scene where Chani, uh, played by, uh, the, uh, Zendaya, um, she has the voiceover. And she yeah. says, My, Dune is a beautiful planet. 
Yeah. And it's, it's an exposition scene with a bit of a montage where it shows that there's this conflict of these oppressors uh, of the Harkonnen and how they're waging war against the Harkonnen. Okay. And they're like, you know, we didn't beat them, but for some reason the emperor took them away and they're replacing them. And then it ends on this big question, who will our new oppressors be? And that right there sets up the whole conflict that Paul is facing. Mm. He represents the Fremen. Who are our new oppressors? And Paul comes in and says, the goal, my goal is to make an ally of the Fremen. So that right there is ties directly into the impetus, the dramatic question, and the climax. Who will our new oppressors be? Right. That is the, the mountain that he has to climb and the dragon he has to slay. Okay. It's beautifully done. I think Villeneuve tapped into that single dramatic question and every single scene addresses that question from moment, like literally moment to moment, every single conflict is directly questioning how will Paul uh, make an alliance with a Fremen and what does he need to do to do that? Hmm. Um, so from there, that gives us a nice overlook of the story structure, the, uh, the lay of the land. So we've got uh, act one, which goes from minute one or minute zero to minute 30 which is uh, prototypical. That's an, that's a normal act one length act two, however, uh, ends up being, uh, 45 minutes, which is very unusual. It's a, it's a, it's a longer act two act two is actually longer than act one. Um, and the midpoint comes in right at an hour 15. Uh, then the act three, this is where it's even stranger. Act three is from an hour 15 to an hour 37, which, so an, the act three, usually act three is a little bit longer. This one's very short, very, I wouldn't call it truncated, but I would call it um, compressed. Yeah. And it's compressed in a really clever way because it's so dramatic. It's so brutal that it radically resets the chessboard. And it does that all in the process uh, of just, uh, what is it? Five, 10, 15. 20 minutes, literally 20 minutes. The whole Harkonnen attack is a 20 minute sequence from the Harkonnens arriving all the way to Leto dying. Everything after that is act four. And this is extremely unusual. Usually act four is yeah. the shortest act on all of them. But with this, this is what caused a lot of people to say like, uh, I felt like it reached a certain culmination and then went on for another hour. Um, so in this case, uh, this ends up being an hour long, um, almost exactly an hour long fourth act. That's very unusual, um, but it works. I, I believe it works, and it, it, especially once you understand the dramatic question is, will Paul form an alliance with the Fremen? From that point on, every other strategy completely makes sense why you would structure it in that way. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's those four acts that uh, really uh, give us the structure. So then, uh, so from there, let's, let's just do a quick rundown of the entire, uh, now this is very, a very complex, uh, structure. Um, but I just want to give a quick overview, uh, just so we, we see this, the shape of the, the story structure. So that first act is building up to the significance of, uh, the asking the dramatic question. Uh, we get the hook and then we go to, uh, breakfast time with Paul. And we see the voice. Is that a um, podcast? Breakfast time with Paul yeah. Atreides. Paul Atreides. Uh, then we go to from there to the succession ceremony. 
Now, what's interesting about the succession ceremony, I think this is very important. This move, this scene doesn't exist in the book. It's one of the few scenes in the movie that doesn't have a correlate with the book. Um, and I think that is exactly why Villeneuve created this. Uh, it, it helps convey the information that we need. Um, but more importantly, it speaks to what I believe Villeneuve is saying about the nature of ritual and dreams in, uh, in character and mm. ultimately back to propaganda. I think he's having a, a really deep dive exploration into the nature of propaganda and free will. Uh, so from the succession ceremony, uh, we intro Duncan Idaho. Uh, great. Immediately. Like, that's what I love about um, Jason Momoa so much. He just immediately comes off as someone you love, someone, you know, someone you want to hang out with, you want him to like you. Um, uh, then we go to the impetus, the conversation at the cemetery with his father. Um, we go from there to intro Gurney. Gurney is a different kind of mentor. We're seeing Paul, what we're mostly what we're seeing, Paul, we're, we're seeing the different dimensions of him by how he interacts with different mentors. His first mentor is his mother, uh, then Duncan Idaho, then his father, then Gurney Halleck. Um, and then, and then that all builds up those introductions of the different mentors arise at his first trial. And that first trial is the Gom Jabbar, um, where we have like the amazing uh, Charlotte Ramplin uh, oh. with Reverend Mother. How do you say that? Reverend Mother Moholium? Moholium? Um, so I got to have the like the the Dune uh, experts uh, comment on this. So yeah, I got to get a shreds. primer on that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so the Gom Jabbar is the is Paul's first trial, and it's important that it's it's a it's a trial by ordeal. Um, because, and the reason why it's a trial is because it's, uh, it's there to determine his worthiness. It, it serves as a transformational movement, but the reason it plays into the story is because it's, uh, it's a determination of his worthiness for, uh, what's to come. And it also, uh, tells us a lot about the structure. Um, one of the big things that I love about it is, uh, is that it starts to set up a psychological distinction between the two obligations, the two paths that Paul is destined for. And those two paths, um, Villeneuve uh, metaphorized, I also think Herbert did too, metaphorized it between the political obligations of his father, Duke Leto, and the spiritual obligations of his mother, or the mm -hmm. Bene Gesserit. And Villeneuve specifically structured that as opposite, as a, as a dichotomy. Those two aspects of Paul are in competition with, with each other. And, you know, as in like um, uh, the classic dichotomy, the classic, uh, the rhetorical structure of using dichotomy is to achieve synthesis. And the, oh. the process of using uh, opposites or synthesis is where you take two opposites, bring them into conflict, and then you achieve synthesis where they overcome you. It's not that the two opposites, uh, one wins, one loses. It's the two become one path, uh, which is the, uh, oh, dialectic. Sorry, I was blanking on that. No. So, the, it's, okay. so the whole story is a dialectic of the competition between the father and the mother, the Bene Gesserit, and the dukedom. The, and the irony is both of them are political, which is what I love about this. I think Villeneuve and Herbert are both tying into the relationship between politics and religion or the spiritual and the social. Um, okay. So then uh, from the Don Jabbar, 
Gomjabar, we go to the Dune arrival. Uh, we arrive and we see the orientation. The, uh, everyone's chanting Lisan al-Gayib. We see all of these kind of fulfillments of prophecy. But what we're told is uh, Paul doesn't believe the prophecy. He favors his father's interpretation, which is, oh, the Bene Gesserit is here. Um, and they've been planting these seeds of superstition so that when we arrive, there's all these people that think we have power, which is a really clever commentary on the relationship between religion and politics. Uh, then we have Paul's second trial, the hunter-seeker moment, uh, where he's you know studying Dune, and there's this assassin in the wall, right? Mm. Um, and that that hunter-seeker trial is he again he passes the trial by showing discipline. It's not that he's stronger, faster, smarter. It's that he shows self-control, and that self-control is what ties into this is how you pass this trial. Um, and most most uh, ordeals and most trials are tests of worthiness that exhibit either your strength, your prowess, um, your abilities to certain skills. And in this case, very specifically, Paul's trials keep being questions of can he control himself, which ties into the, the nature of spirituality. Uh, so then from there, the hunter seeker, we cut to um, uh, Gady Prime where uh, Baron is meeting with uh, the lead Bene Gesserit, the uh, Reverend Mother, and they basically say, they come up with a, a deal. They come up with a conspiracy together. Um, and they set up certain things that, you know, uh, we're going to give you the Duke, but uh, we, we need to protect. You can't kill Jessica and Paul. Uh, then we go back. Stilgar comes in. We, we introduce uh, the, the Fremen meet with the Duke for the first time. You know, it's the spit on the table scene. Uh, and he's like, he's, he's, you know, spits on the table. And Just brilliant. Like, compliment. Yeah, it's great. It's a great inversion yeah, of, of so culture. Good. It's a great illustration of culture as well in the moral mosaic that you talked about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, really great point. Yeah. I, I love it when you cite me to myself. <laughs> uh, so then from there, we got this great sequence. This is one of the longer scenes. All these scenes are like really, really short, very quick. I was never bored at all for it. No, I didn't think uh, But then we have the... the the harvester down, the, the harvester sabotaged. And uh, the, so we see that there's, you know, conflict sabotage that's already in the dukedom, but more importantly, Paul gets the, to experience the spice for the first time and it wakes up something in him. He starts to see, he has visions of the future. And then in the next scene, that's where we learn that he knows his mother's pregnant. And she's like, how well, how would you know that? So his mother's, at first, she's kind of like saying, you know, yeah, this is the Bene Gesserit building this rhetoric about the the Maudi or the Messiah. But um, but when he starts prophesying to her, he starts saying things that only like he couldn't know. She starts to be like, well, maybe he is the Lisan Nagib. Maybe he is the Kwisatz Haderach. Um, and then uh, so we go from that the moment where he knows his mother's pregnant to the recruitment of the Sadokar. Um, and the Sadokar is, is, you know, it's, it's just this elite terrifying, you know, they're the, they're the best warriors in the universe. They're kind of this, uh, this mercenary group. They, they're the blade of the emperor, which is what's, you know, so obvious. I think in the book, the, um, if I remember correctly, the Sadokar disguised themselves as Harkonnen because the emperor didn't want everyone else. They didn't want the rest of the houses to know that the emperor approved of the Harkonnen uprising of taking out right. the house of Atreides. 
But in the movie, for some reason, they just, they didn't even bother. Like immediately the Atreides saw the Sadokar and they knew that it was them. They, they didn't think that they were Harkonnen. Um, which, you know, that's a question for the Dune experts. I'd love to know like what they think about that, that change that the, that the, because that exposes the emperor's uh, conspiracy with the Harkonnen. If the Sadokar go in there and help the Harkonnen take down the house of Atreides. Um, so that's a question for you guys. Um, fact, that would be fascinating to hear if anybody does have in, any information on the uh, peripheral world as far as, yeah. as that is concerned. Yeah. And why, why Villeneuve would have made that decision. I, I think that's mm-hmm. interesting. So then we cut from the Sadokar. We know that war is coming. We felt the war coming all the way this whole first hour of the movie. Um, and Leto has this moment with his, with his, the love of his life, Jessica, the lady Jessica. And uh, that devastating moment where he's like, I just, I thought I would have had more time. We're not ready. It, it's heartbreaking. It's beautiful. So uh, then we get the, the attack of the Harkonnen. It, it's just, so when they arrive, you just, you feel like you're caught with your pants down. There's, you just, it, it's so devastating already. Um, and then uh, real quick, uh, some major touch points. Uh, Yui gives Leto the tooth to poison uh, the emperor out of mm-hmm. revenge. Um, and Yui's a much more complicated character. We don't get to see much of him in the movie, but in the book, he's a, he's a really interesting character. He's, um, yeah, we, we, we can go into that another time. But uh, then um, Duncan shows up and he just starts slaying people left and right. We see what kind of badass he is. He's taking out Sardaukar left and right. Uh, and then uh, Paul and Jessica are abducted by those Harkonnens. Uh, and then we have that scene where the Baron and Leto are together and he kills, you know, Baron kills Leto. Uh, and then we get to the low point where Leto dies and Paul takes the ring. They're out in that tent in the desert. Uh, and then we cross over into act four. So, you know, the, a lot's happened really quickly and it's, you know, it's, it's been over an hour and a half. Um, the movie could have ended there with credits you know, we could have just rolled credits as soon as he puts the ring on and I would have been satisfied, but it wouldn't have answered the dramatic question. It definitely would have felt like this huge dangling, uh, unresolved issue. There was a setup and Villeneuve was clever enough to say, actually, let's, let's take it to the point where he answers that dramatic question, which is where we take it into that fourth act. And the fourth act is all about the journey escape into the desert. Uh, so we see, you know, Duncan finds Paul and Jessica, takes them to the ecology station for refuge. Um, the Sadokar invade the station. And then uh, Paul and Jessica escape on the ornithopter, thanks to Duncan Idaho, uh, thanks to his sacrifice for uh, for Paul. And he recognizes him as the new Duke. That's kind of his, uh, that's his ceremony when, when, uh, Idaho runs up to him and kneels before him and uh, dedicates himself. That's almost like the crowning of, of the king in a way. Uh, again, the importance of ceremony. Um, and that's that moment where Jessica is starting to like, at first she's kind of, she comes off as very cynical. She's like, I think my son might be the Kwisatz Haderach. And each piece of this is confirming it for her, which fascinates her, but I think it also terrifies her. Um, and then we go the ornithopter scene where we have that epiphany where he learns to let go into the storm. Mm. Um, and then, you know, they crash, they run for the rocks and they have this amazing scene with, I call it the apotheosis scene. 
An apotheosis is when um, a usually religious character uh, experiences a kind of revelation that elevates their spiritual status. And it, it, it shows that they have some sort of connection with the divine that's unique to them. Uh, and that moment where Paul and Jessica are standing on that rock cliff in front, it's, it's almost like, I think it mirrors the Duncan scene where the sandworm is reared up. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that scene in a second. Um, then after that, they go off, they find the Fremen or the Fremen find them. And we have the big final climax, the trial by combat. That's Paul's third trial. Again, another trial by ordeal. Um, and then we have uh, the final, uh, the final sequence is the resolution of that, of that climax is Paul is adopted into the tribe and he takes the desert path. He, he goes out into the desert as one of the Fremen, as part of the new tribe. So that, that gives us a good overview. Uh, we got, again, that unusual act structure, structure, a typical act one, a long act two, a very short act three, and then a very long act four, which I think contributed to people coming away from it feeling like, I don't know how to feel. Something feels kind of off about it. Personally, it's, it's a movie that when I go back to it, I've gone back and probably seen it like six or seven times now. The more I watch it, the more I love this structural choice. And I think it sets up perfectly for the series. I think we need this kind of unconventional structure that still is connected to strategies and plots. But uh, but let's talk about Paul's inner conflict. Uh, the inner conflict is what tells us about the arc and the character arc. And not every movie needs to have an, a character arc. But in this case, do you think that uh, Dune Part 1 had a character arc? Just Part 1, not the whole book. A lot of people get distracted by the whole book, but this is Villeneuve is structuring part one as if it's its own story, a contained unit. Is there an arc in part one? Well, you talked about apotheosis. And one of the things that um, I found fascinating about um, the moment at which he samples the spice at the fir first time. Yeah. For the first time. Yeah. Like the idea that, he went from, I mean, it's very much like, you know, psychedelicas in our world. Um, you know, there is this theory or belief that uh, we we evolved as uh, species um, due to our access to psychedelic medication or psychedelic mushrooms. Um, and so when I start thinking about him going from being um on his home planet uh to him actually being on arrakis being in uh the new world and i uh, i think that he had an arc of being very sure of himself and knowing where he stood to being okay with stepping forward without really knowing what was going to happen next. Yes. I think that's I, such a good idea. Yeah. That's a great observation. Yeah. And I, I totally think, and I think that that is um, a reflection. We can all connect with that because ultimately as adults, we go from a place that's very secure and, and, uh, and specifically comforting because, you know, we go from a mother, mother's arms into the world and we connect with that on that level that we have to be able to move into situations 
not knowing what's going to happen next, but still live our lives. And I mm-hmm. think that he basically became a more mature person because he lost the shackles that made him a child, which was his father. And I'm going to bring it up again. Duncan, Idaho, his own private Idaho. He um, that is what allowed him to um, experience his uh, narcissistic. What was it we talked about the other day? Was it the narcissistic conflict or crisis? It allowed him Hmm. to kind of um, break apart what he thought was him. Oh, narcissistic injury. Yeah, the narcissistic narcissistic injury. We literally saw it physically. We saw the death of his father, the death of his protector, um, the loss of his kingdom. Mm -hmm. You know, this is uh, a quintessential narcissistic injury where he's kind of going from being this person point of power to being like, well, now I have to find my purpose. Now I have to find who I I really am. And ultimately, Mm -hmm. his entire life, he was told he was one thing, which I think... I, I, I very much connect with because, you know, being raised religious um, and trying to understand the world through those rose colored glasses or that rose colored filter and then removing those rose col- that filter and seeing the world for something completely different, mm-hmm. again, is part of that narcissistic injury, that, that um, maturity, the process of being able to mm-hmm. shed the old like Campbell talks about the old, the snake is a, is a symbol of change because it, he sheds the old and moves forward into the new, um, the new skin. Uh, and so in that way, yes, I do see a character arc with, with Atreides. Good. You brought up a a point. So uh, my method for identifying a character arc is through the different dimensions of the inner conflict and the inner conflict starts with the conscious desire which is uh, the character wants something that they know they want. Uh, the unconscious drive it usually has to do with the inner internal values of the sacred and the profane uh, that is usually inaccessible to their conscious. Uh, that's why there's two different, uh, and those, those are usually somewhat in conflict. The con- unconscious drive drives them to want to solve the problem, mm-hmm. but the unconscious drive nested within that is this Achilles heel that is sabotaging them from achieving their goal. In most cases, most stories are about how the pursuing your conscious drive motivated by your unconscious drive, sorry, pursuing your conscious desire motivated by your unconscious drive is about getting out of your comfort zone to confront the false beliefs or the flaws, the values that uh, are undermining your growth. And when, sorry, go ahead. With Paul, he um, the fascinating thing about him was that he kind of came into. I mean, he was very well versed. Like, okay, we're going back to the book, but he was well versed in the Orange Bible, and he knew um, uh, the religion, and he knew that he. You may need to edit this, but from what I understand, he he knew that he wasn't the second coming of the Savior, basically the the messiah but he was being presented as that to a people for the, his own control uh, for his own ability to control right uh, well so th- the way the movie is presenting it 
uh, he is he does not believe that he is the Lisan Al Gaib. He thinks it's right. all hokum. He thinks yeah. it's all the product of the propaganda of the Bene Gesserit. Yeah, and that's but the thing. It is as he's having a subjective experience that is beginning to persuade him, like he's having visions that are coming true. Mm-hmm. He's fulfilling these prophecies, but also more importantly, he's experiencing things that make him start to accept that perhaps there is some substance to this rhetoric. There is some substance to these prophecies. Well, see, um, and that's, and that's, and that's what I mean to, to talk about is the fact that he was, um, even though his mother had these crazy ideas and his father was very practical and he was a ruler and he was, you know, an elite class. And so his, he always kind of looked to his father as the authority and the mother as, oh, well, she has her ideas, you know, I get it. Mm-hmm. But, and so when you see him kind of move from, oh, wait a minute, dad's gone now, mom's here and not everything is as clear. Not everything is as, um, as black and white. We're moving out of the Manichaean thinking into the more, mm-hmm. um, the more nuanced world, which again is another sign of maturity. Yeah, definitely. So let's let's tie that into uh, the practicals of the of the character arc. So first, what we want to do is go through and identify these d- dimensions of the inner conflict, and look at how the plot. Um, and the plot again is just the structure of uh, problem solving the way the character chooses to solve them. Um, that's all plot is. It's the strategies for for problem solving, um, but it reveals the values of the characters and the flaws of the characters. Um, so, what what would you say the conscious desire of Paul is for this Dune Part One? And I'll give you a hint the conscious desire and the dramatic question are always the same thing it's the problem they set out to solve oh well uh according to the dramatic question will he be accepted by the fremen yes more specifically will he build an alliance mm-hmm. with the fremen? yeah exactly good so the conscious desire um yeah will he make an alliance with the fremen uh that's what he wants to do uh, and his unconscious drive is, wh- why does he want to do that? What makes him want that? Uh, uh, I personally, I think it's every boy. I mean, every boy wants to impress his father. Every boy wants to um, do as his father says. You know, there's a certain so- point at where... I think you make a really good point. I don't know about every boy and I don't know about every father, but in this case, I do believe. So the unconscious drive is usually uh, the values uh, that the, (laughs) that the protagonist is trying to prove about themselves. And Paul's unconscious drive. I think you're dead on correct. He wants to prove he is worthy of his father's trust, which is a very specific way of phrasing it. He's uh, his father is showing him trust but beneath all of that, he keeps – there is a uncertainty in Duke Leto that Oscar Isaacs conveys really well. Between Oscar Isaacs and Villeneuve directing and the writing, there's always this tension of he, – he feels sorry that he has to impose this and bridle his son or burden his son with this. And then on, 
on top of that, he's worried that Paul, that he hasn't done everything he could to prepare Paul for it. He keeps trying to protect him from having to take the responsibility, but at the same time, uh, he realizes that him protecting him too much might be sabotaging him from being equipped to be able to handle it, which is ultimately what causes the the inner conflict of be forced. When Leto is taken away, Paul has to take the mantle. He has to take up the torch that his father has dropped. Uh, so within that, the prove his prove he is worthy of his father's trust. What is the Achilles heel in that? And the Achilles heel is just the flawed belief the protagonist has nested within the value system of the unconscious drive. What is the false belief that Paul has within that? Oh, let's see. Well, um, he has a lot of the dogma of his mother um, mm-hmm. talking about yep. um, and he's got a lot of the policy procedure of his father mm-hmm. um, in conflict with each other in conflict with each other and there are definitely differences yeah um, which is a nice polarity there uh, so if his objective is his unconscious drive is to prove he's worthy of his father's trust what what belief is a flawed belief about that that he's not worthy It could be, or that his worthiness comes from rejecting his spiritual destiny. He knows that his father is like, look, your mother and her Benny Jesuit, whatever. They can, I love your mother, but her beliefs and her religion. That's why he says, I'm not talking to his mother. I'm talking to the Benny Jesuit. Will you protect Paul? And that's such an important distinction because it dives into that thing, that, that conflict between the two the conflict that Paul feels in himself, two aspects of his own nature. You have more than one inheritance, one of the spiritual of the Bene Gesserit and the other of the political of the dukedom. And his father just keeps hammering. This is where power is. This is your responsibility. And then his mother comes in and says, you're more than this. You, you, you have the spiritual obligation too. And, and Paul feels like he favors his father because that's where he puts his, his trust and his sense of self-worth and rejects his, uh, his mother's spiritual impositions. And the, his belief is that his worth comes from rejecting that spiritual destiny. He's like, I'm not interested in the messiahship or any of this Lisan al-Gaib superstition. I am here to create an alliance uh, to get desert power, to build desert power. And that's, uh, that's where that Achilles heel is going to be tested. It's a false belief because he believes that there's no value to what his mother is teaching and the obligation that his mother is putting on him. But as soon as he arrives at Dune, he's entering a new moral sphere. And that moral sphere, the reason why it's a moral sphere is because it carries a moral imperative. And the moral imperative is defined by that which you must do to survive in this sphere. That's why it's called a more. That's why I call it the moral sphere. Um, so within Dune, he has a very specific objective within the moral sphere, which is to create an alliance with the Fremen. And in order to do that, um, he needs to um, free himself of this false belief 
which is that the spiritual destiny of the Lisan al Gaib has more weight to it than he's willing to accept. Uh, so I would say that the moral imperative is to ally himself with the Fremen, Paul must follow the desert path. And the desert path means the path that the Fremen walk. The whole story of part one of Dune is all about Paul being stripped of every advantage and privilege that his father has given him as a duke, as an authority figure, as a rich kid. It's stripping him of everything and all he has left with him is uh, the spirituality of the guidance of, and mentorship of his mother. And when he walks into the desert, um, he's, he's still fighting it. And it's, it's not, that's why that, that character arc starts off with him saying, you've made me a freak. I don't want anything to do with this Kwisatz Haderach, which do you know what Kwisatz Haderach means? No, I have no idea. So apparently it, it, it's, um, I believe it's a, a Hebrew term, which means a shortening of the way. Oh, wow. Yeah. And the whole idea of folding space and the Kwisatz Haderach, who uh, basically the idea is that the Bene Gesserit are able to access all of the memories of all of the women uh, throughout history. And that gives them uh, power and advantage and psychic connection. And the Kwisatz Haderach is supposed to be this ultimate figure who is able to access all of the memories of both male and female of men and women. Um, and uh, so the shortening of the way ends up being kind of this connection between like folding space. And the key to that is the sandworms apparently. Um, and again, I, I uh, concede to the Dune experts to correct me on that. Um, are, are you talking about, um, these those creatures that had evolved from humans who had become who had the ability to, through the spice to to fold space is that what you're talking about is it um, so the, the folding of the space is you know from the the space guild um, they mm-hmm. use yeah, spice. The space guild okay yeah yeah um, which is um, that that gets into things that are beyond Dune Part One so I don't want to sure. dive into that too much. Um, and even folding space isn't presented in, in the first one. It's just, it's visually presented in a really interesting way, but I think Villeneuve still uses those sci-fi aspects to invoke, um, archetypal, uh, narratives, archetypal metaphors. Um, we'll, we'll talk about that in just a second, but, um, so, so we have that full arc where by engaging the moral imperative of, the only way to connect with the Fremen is to embrace uh, the the desert path or the spiritual path that the Bene Gesserit, or specifically his mother, has been trying to prepare him to engage. Uh, and which uh, which gives us gives rise to the theme. Now, a lot of people again have uh, the the moral imperative and the theme are connected in that the moral imperative teaches us the theme. The way the protagonist engages the moral imperative is what gives us the theme. And one of the things I've, I've noticed is that uh, a lot of people confuse moral imperative with theme because uh, largely it's my fault because I've, I've been too general in identifying the moral imperative. But a moral imperative is always specific to the story and to the world of the story. The theme is what we learn and can extrapolate from to our own lives. This is the, the rule of survival that we learn from the protagonist engaging the moral imperative. Um, so in this case, 
I would say that the central theme of Dune Part One is to achieve your life purpose, you have to trust that fate will deliver you. Now, in this case, that's that's literally the conflict or the realization, the epiphany that Paul has. Everything before he goes into the desert, he's constantly trying, sorry, he's constantly trying to control everything. He knows that Duncan, he has a vision of Duncan dying with the Fremen. And so he wants to go with him and protect him. Every time he has a vision, he wants to do something about it and he's conflicted. And he keeps hearing, every spiritual epiphany he has, keeps saying, look, you can't control this. His father says, you need to control this. You're going to be Duke. You have to take control of everything. And his mother is saying, you can't do that. There's no way to do that. In fact, your calling is to fulfill a path, a plan that is not your own. You can come up with your own plan as much as you want. But there's a much bigger plan in play that has to do with destiny and fate um, or, you know, what the Fremen call the desert way or the desert path. He's, and he literally says, the future takes me into the desert, to the way of the desert. And that's, that's what I would say is the theme. And it, that, that part one perfectly articulates that transformation. Um, which, which dives us in, you know, this opens us up to, you know, Dune part one. What is this really about? And, and I want to talk a little bit about, um, well, before, before we get into that, do you have any more other comments about like the nature of like the, the, the character arc and the themes? Well, the themes, like I said, like, uh, when we were talking about outlining, um, mm-hmm. the themes of this versus this control versus, uh, fate, mm-hmm. um, I think that things are very easily abstracted down into, you know, this versus that. And I, um, and for me, again, as someone who's constantly searching for patterns and things, um, I, um, I really loved, um, the polarity of the mother and the father and Mm -hmm. how they illustrated that almost, almost perfectly they just personify yeah. control as opposed to but i love the element of the character who was trying to live up to these huge people like these huge like very very um impressive people of character and and his idea that i mean even as a child you're always looking up to your parents and mm-hmm. uh, i mean if again in my normal world, I was grateful to have very good parents. Um, but, uh, you know, you're looking up to parents and the question that the child becomes, which is fascinating, is the idea that am I worthy? Am I, am I, can I ever be as good as, or your comparative reality? You know, you're comparing this kind of idea of that. And I think Paul um, illustrates that very well like that character like that question yeah yeah and and the idea of moving him through maturity into um uh whether or not he is worthy um because he comes from a culture that worthiness is a thing yeah well we all have you know worth is value and we all have values we all have sacred values and then profane values or yep the the 
profane is that which threatens our sacred values. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, g- good point. That's a really good observation. And well, one of the things I'm I glad- find huh? Go ahead. Well, one of the things I find fascinating is that if we were to get down to it, and if we were to have a conversation between the Duke and his wife, they would actually find each other profane to a certain degree. It, you know, it, yeah, it, there's that element. What's that? There yeah, is that, that element, element yeah. of uh, the dogma and the and the. It's a dialectic. The 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 yeah, two the uh, op- opposing views in conflict to arrive at a synthesis. Yeah, and they live in a contradiction there because they they deeply love each other, and it's very yeah. obvious. Yeah, which is which is great because that's that's metaphorized between you know Paul is. Yep. Uh, metaphorized between the mother and the father in conflict with each other, but still combined with a deep love. Mm-hmm. And it's that love that brings purpose. It's that Absolutely. love that brings meaning. Yeah. So uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, some of the imagery and uh, the metaphors that Villeneuve is invoking that is very consistent with Villeneuve. And I think he explores it in a way that very few other directors have, uh, have approached with such meaningful effect. Uh, and that is specifically this idea of ritual and ceremony. Uh, you know, you mentioned uh, Joseph Campbell, and it's a perfect point. Like Joseph Campbell follows in the tradition of uh, ethnographers, uh, like Arnold Genup and um, uh, several sociologists, uh, and and the the idea that um, most of the stories that are being told are following archetypal figures. Now, Campbell largely drew on um, Carl Jung's idea of yeah, archetypes, yeah. universal metaphorical figures and uh, contexts that we all recognize. Um, Jung called them the collective consciousness, and, but basically they're um, uh, they're metaphors that we're born to recognize in order to make sense of the world around us. Mm-hmm. Um, and these rites of passage are ways of using conflict to endow us with value systems or more specifically to indoctrinate um, with those value systems. And what we're seeing through all of Dune part one is a series of trials that are designed not just to test for worthiness, but to indoctrinate Paul with a very specific value system. Um, And uh, the way he does the way Villeneuve does that, I think he's hinting at it with this invented scene where they have the ceremony, the succession ceremony, where they uh, pass off the rites of fiefdom uh, of Arrakis from the Harkonnen to the uh, Atreides. Um, and so each ordeal, um, the, the theory of, uh, of maturation uh, or rites of passage comes from this idea of uh, – you know, the, it uses the metaphor of like of growth uh, and maturation is is like a house, and as you each room is you graduate from one room to the next as you mature. So when you cross a threshold, it's a kind of trial. Like you cross a threshold, then there's a trial to prove that you're worthy to be in that room. And if you are worthy to be in that room, it's so basically each room becomes its own moral sphere, and the 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 rituals of cultures were designed to prepare people to expand their skill set to function in a society, to function in new moral spheres. That's what we call maturation. 
It's maturation through conflict ordeal. It's a kind of way of using trauma to learn. Um, but uh, trauma in a way that uh, teaches us something, um, which is, it, it's something that Joseph Campbell had said, you know, we're very much in danger of losing, losing ritual in society. And we draw most of our meaning, most of our sense of purpose or bliss from these rituals. And I think Villeneuve is, is engaging Dune um, specifically from uh, invoking these metaphors. And the biggest metaphor of the, of the ordeals is a crossing of a threshold. That's a, the doorway. And when you cross through a threshold, it represents a death and then a birth into a new life. And I think uh, Villeneuve chose very interesting ways of doing that. He, he follows the path of you cross a threshold and then you face an ordeal. You cross a threshold, face an ordeal. And the way he does that uh, is very interesting when it comes to the, the visualization, which is specifically birth. Now, there are certain doorways that we see literal doorways as we're going to be crossing a threshold. But he also chose a really interesting metaphor uh, the first trial that we have is Paul facing the Gom Jabbar. And before that, we have a crossing of a threshold of um, the spaceport, which is when the Bene Gesserit are entering um, to Caladan. And we see, you know, through the, uh, through the kind of throat of the spaceport, we see another planet. And it, it's, it's a beautiful, powerful imagery that tells us that there's a kind of almost wormhole a, you know, galactic wormhole that, that sends them to a different solar system. Um, so before we see that, um, we see that image of a portal, which is a type of threshold. And then right after that, we see his first trial, the trial of the Gom Jabbar. And then the next uh, trial we, he has, he, he crosses a threshold. Again, that's the next time we see the portal. And the interesting thing about this is notice that the portal looks a lot like a kind of egg that is giving birth to all these little uh, a, uh all these little uh, almost like uh, tadpoles in a way like it reminds yeah. me a lot of uh, a lot of like planting eggs yeah. um and then after that you know we have that first kind of uh revelatory ritual of the reception of the lisan al-gaib which you know very clearly invokes uh the metaphor of uh of you know christ on palm yeah. sunday being received um, and then you have, uh, the next threshold very interestingly is, you know, with new birth, the, sh the threshold begins to, uh, represent a kind of, uh, the birth process. So specifically, you know, the womb. And if you look at this door right before, uh, the, the threshold of crossing into the Harkonnen attack, you have very specifically framed a kind of door that is deliberately uh, invoking the imagery um, of the reproductive organs of, uh, of giving birth. Um, and then right after that, we see Leto getting stabbed in the back. Yeah. Uh, and then again, we, that's the next time we see the space portal is when Gurney Halleck is looking up into the atmosphere and just in orbit, we see the portal again. And this is, this represents the next trial that they're going to face, which is the attack of the, the Sadokar. 
um, and with the massive deaths, massive, this is, this is a death on the massive scale and then new birth. And then we cut to very interestingly, the next portal, significant portal we see is Paul and Jessica in the womb of the doom of the, of the sand dune. Uh, and they experience a very significant emotional transformation. Paul goes in uh, as the son of Lado, but the next time he leaves that tent, he is now the Duke. And it's important that he's in the in the womb of Dune in this tent. And it's designed, like we also see these kind of almost like veins of water. Mm. The tent is designed to collect the humidity from the body uh, and turn it into drinkable water so they can keep... Uh, regenerating their water. But more importantly, on the metaphorical level or the allegorical level, uh, they're in the womb uh, of the planet being prepared to transform. You know, and you know, that's the Joseph Campbell thing. The, the, the hero is always sucked into the low point, the belly of the whale. And the whale, you know, it's, it invokes the imagery of Joan and the whale. It's in the whale that the character realizes is forced to have a certain kind of uh, arc and epiphany, which is why usually the low point carries that epiphany. But in this case, it carries a different transformation. He becomes the Duke, um, specifically in the sand, in the, in the dunes. And then if you look at the next shot, he starts to unzip the, the tent and it's a very specific shot. They cut to, um, this little kangaroo rat and the kangaroo rat is called a Mwadip in, uh, from the Fremen. And it's this very simple, small animal that survives in the most harsh environment in the universe or in the known universe. And uh, this is later what uh, Paul Atreides would call himself by the name of the Fremen. He would call himself the Muad'Dib because he sees this creature. So Muad'Dib is his new name. It is the name that his tribe identifies him by. And this is the moment where literally the Dune gives birth to the new Paul. He no longer has his father. He has now uh, become the Duke, given birth to the Sands. And it shows him connecting directly with, with this Muad'Dib. Uh, and then interestingly, he helps his mother out of the womb too, which is a uh, very interesting uh, you know, world within a world. Uh, <laughs> womb within a womb. Womb with a view. Womb. Um, <laughs> So the interesting thing is I, I started thinking about like, so there are these very specific portals that we see. Every time we see a portal, there's a significant trial that Paul's goes through. And I noticed that I was like, well, wait a minute. One of his, his second trial is the hunter seeker trial. Now it's a plot point, but it also serves as a kind of spiritual trial for his character arc. And the interesting thing is I was like, well, is there, is there a, a space portal? before that scene, I was curious to see if there's like some reference to a threshold or a space portal. Can you think of any image around that scene that, that might be a kind of doorway or threshold? I remember the reliefs on the wall, which were absolutely fascinating. The bull and the, the altar. Was it an altar? So the, the bull represents a, a, a very the interesting family. metaphor with, with the father. Yeah. yeah with specifically the father. with the, the tradition of the father of, their whole strategy, their yeah. whole political strategy is they tame the bull. Yeah. They, they, the they bull. always, you know, they, 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 they beat the bull by outsmarting them by, by using their powers. But what's interesting is you're right. The relief at the very beginning mm -hmm. is the relief of a sandworm. Ah, that's so freaking cool. 
I love it. So here's the interesting thing is the sandworm is very looks similar to that portal, but what's yeah. what's even more interesting is okay, so the metaphor of the threshold and the transformation goes back to this whole Jonah and the whale archetype. Or, um, well, that's it's a classical metaphor. It's a, a religious metaphor. Sure. Um, sure. But it is th- this idea of, of um, uh, being trapped in the belly of this monster, this beast, is an archetypal transformational uh, metaphor that, that resonates with, with, uh, with all of it. Well, resonates with those of us that, are, that recognize it. But the interesting thing is, is you know, I, that got me thinking in Dune – so the bile of the sandworm is what produces spice and spice is what the gilding, the spacing guild uses to fold space. So the, the literally the sandworm would be better called the sand whale because of its scale. And they become the metaphor for the portal of transformation. And the interesting thing is what's Paul's final trial? It's the fight, yeah. Yeah, the fight with Jammies, exactly. Yeah. So that fight, the interesting thing is, what is is there? If that's the final trial, that means there must be some indication of a threshold right before that. If we're invoking that same metaphor, and the interesting thing is, the scene right before the fight is the apotheosis scene. Mm. This is where Paul and Jessica see the giant sandworm and the sandworm inclines itself the same way Idaho did to him, almost as if to acknowledge his position uh, as perhaps some Kwisatz Haderach Lisan Al-Gaib Duke. It's like Uh, a dang magic show is what it is. (laughs) Yeah, I do think it's like, yeah. It's it's just beautiful how you synthesize the combination of of, uh, the plot points as well as the as the visual language. I love it. So the interesting thing is, is uh, so the, the Fremen refer to the sandworms as Shai Halud, which is the mm-hmm. God that they worship. Yeah. And Shai Halud is the God they worship is this powerful. I, I love that they, they invoke this. It's one of the things that I think Herbert does probably better than anybody, which is tap into the relate, the way we build religions are sacred values emerging from metaphors of the power dynamics we have to deal with. Mm. And this idea of a sandworm is this powerful, uh, it's all, it's not only like massive death and cataclysm, but it's also the source of life and revelation. And the interesting thing is look at the way Villeneuve designed the worm. It's not just a, a giant whale figure that absorbs, but it also looks like an eyeball an iris. It looks like the eye of God. He's staring directly into the eye of God, this massive eyeball that is about to uh, help him transform into a completely different person, which he does in his final trial, Mm. which goes back to that, you know, hero's journey of, you know, crossing the thresholds and, um, and becoming that hero figure. Um, but here's the thing about about Dune and Villeneuve in particular is a lot of people. So, for example, they'll they'll criticize Dune as saying, well, it's just, you know, it was very heavily influenced by the story of uh, Lawrence of Arabia, um, which is a story about a British soldier uh, that engaged in uh, tribal warfare 
and uh, led um, uh, led some desert armies. And it was very inspired by that. And a lot of people were saying, well, you know, it's white savior story. But when you understand the larger story of Dune, the first book is about this hero's journey. It's all about the rise of Paul, this Messiah figure. And then it goes on to tell the story of how Paul becomes a monster. Like the interesting thing is in, in the movie, the Atreides, especially Duke Leto, he seems like a very compassionate person. He's very kind to the Fremen. He sees them as, as uh, equals. He, he has a great deal of respect for them in the book. It's a bit more cynical than that. Uh, the Atreides, yeah. while they're not as harsh or brutal as the Harkonnen, they still regard the Fremen as kind of colonial figures that they're colonizing. And they use propaganda as modes of manipulation and control. Their form of allyship is uh, rather than diplomacy, they, en- they engage, uh, you know, like um, uh, kind of uh, forms of colonialism like, you know, uh, 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 taking their resources and forcing them to work for them. And then that, that generates them. So the, the Atreides also engage in this, in a similar kind of a, a colonialism in the movie, they, he adopts more of the values of a modern Duke or what we see as modern, like almost an anti-colonial colonial figure. Right. A revolutionary I, figure. Well, I think the Fremen are more the revolution. Well, yeah, I guess he would be kind of a revolutionary figure for the Harkonnen. Yeah. Compared to the Harkonnen. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, he'd be um, a radical. The, uh, the thing that I, I would suggest to you, just because going along these lines, I know you're going to make a point. I just want you to consider that story throughout our history has always been propaganda for the ruling class. And so uh, when we talk... Am I going to get into class war here? Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I think you're, I think you're nailing it. I think you're, you're engaging what Villeneuve is really talking about. I don't think, I think Villeneuve is invoking um, the, the Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, this right. ideal. And, and the thing that this has always been my criticism of Joseph Campbell is that Joseph Campbell claimed that the hero's journey represents all story. And I don't agree with that. Yeah, um, the hero's journey represents the hero story. A hero story is a protagonist who represents an ideal, and it suggests yeah. that this is what we should build up as a hero. This is an ideal we should live by. But then I present the moral mosaic, which is saying it, it's 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 undermining, or it's not undermining. It's taking the question of all different ideals and bringing them into conflict with each other. Right. which is how I articulate it, but it's this old idea, older than Shakespeare, where you take these characters with different ideals. No one ha- is a moral, no one is the epitome of the moral value, but they bring their moral values in conflict with each other and we're forced to reckon with them. Well, what my point is, is that when we start talking about class uh, or the elite or what I w- I remember or what I think about is my ancient literature professor who was talking about mm. the story of Alexander and yeah, how Alexander, um, when he came and took over Persia and he took over uh, all of Arabia, uh, most, most of the known world at the time, um, he perpetuated a story and his people perpetuated a story that he actually was born of a Persian king 
who his mother was expelled because, I mean, Persian kings had so many wives that there was no way to keep track of them. So mm. his mother was a Persian king, but he impregnated her, and then she accidentally sneezed on him. So he's like, go back to Greece. So mom went back to Greece. She had Alexander. Alexander came back. That was the story that they told in order to gain um, consent from the populace. And so, That's perfect. That's great. And, and so when you talk about – and that story is repeated periodically throughout history as a propagandist uh, use of, well, I deserve to be here because I'm this. I am – I, I, I'm Atreides. I, this is my family. We tamed the bull. You know, these kinds of uh, stories where, no, 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 we have a divine right. Um, and the, and it creates a pretense um, to authority. Yeah. And so, like Alexander, just like the, I forget which uh, African king it was, but it's a very similar story. Um, even to the Edis. And the, the Nordic uh, story of Beowulf, mm-hmm. um, even though they were recorded, technically they were recorded by English monks who happen to be fascinated by these people up north. But ultimately, um, these were these stories of an appeal to authority or an appeal to, um, I'm in the right place and this is why. Mm-hmm. And giving people the, the, uh, the authoritative... Uh, Schmutz, ethos, uh, the ethos. yeah, and in, in rhetoric, yeah, it's referred to as the rhetoric, the, the yeah. argument uh, that you know, I I'm supposed to be here. My mom sneezed on that dude, and and I just want what's mine. That's that's such a good parallel to this. Yeah. Um, the interesting thing is, I I do believe that Villeneuve is is both telling the um, the propagandist story, and I think he's subtly laying threads in there. Oh to yeah. Say, By the way, this is all going to unravel. Yeah. Well, I think that's what's beautiful about it is it's subversive. Yeah. And that's why I'm saying that like Leto, 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 um, Leto is a, a subversive character within the elite class. He's, he's one of these, he's like, he's like the Magna Carta, Magna Carta. He's, he's like, well, you know, Mm. people, they're, they're kind of like me. They all have the same organs and they're made of the same flesh. And Mm -hmm. I, kind of feel like maybe we should give them more than what we're actually instead of oppressing them. Maybe we should consider their feelings a little bit, you know, and that's a radical belief in a, in a group that absolutely is converted to, um, no, no, no. The ruling class is, uh, the only class that, that should be controlling, uh, the, uh, the world, the universe. I mean, you, you bring up a really interesting point, especially with the Magna Carta by invoking that, I think you're, you're tapping into something really interesting because the Magna Carta was the product of Dukes of royalty, basically lower royalty saying, Hey, the King needs to stop putting everyone in prison. The Magna Carta said, if you're going to hold royalty in prison, you have to have a trial first. You have to prove that they're guilty of this. You can't just claim a, a royalty can't just claim that they're guilty. And the Magna Carta is what eventually gave birth to common well, law, that, the religious wars. Uh, yeah. Well, the, 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 ultimately the enlightenment and some yeah. of the values of, you know, innocent until proven guilty. 
Well, what's and, fascinating, and the idea I, that there be trials. I can't help but think that maybe there would be some sort of influence there. Because when you start bringing up yeah. Lawrence of Arabia, sure. If you want to be reductive and just say, okay, it's, it's just Lawrence of Arabia with big worms. It's like, or with desert whales. Um, well, okay. But there's so much other stuff to pull from. You could pull from um, the the Ptolemaic kingdom uh uh, of succession with Cleopatra or Cleopatra um, coming together with um, uh, Julius Caesar. You can have all of these are all things that inform a story and you should be using all of that stuff to inform, um, inform your characters and inform, inform your plot as well as your, your story and your themes. Those are all incredibly important because they're systems that work for whatever reason. And so they are in what we might call our collective subconscious. I think it's just our collective experience. But, uh, you know, we're all doing this together. And so we're eventually going to open the same doors. And And one thing, to to bring it back to Dune, the thing I love so much is to – Herbert tapped into something that very – lots of sci-fi and lots of fantasy explores this idea of religion. And mm-hmm. most of the time they just come yeah. up with like very thinly veiled versions of, well, this is this sect of Christianity or this yeah. is this sect of whatever religion, you know, fill in the blank. And what I loved about um, Dune was that he drew a very clear connection that religions are very much the product of the power dynamics and the resources that people have. The religion of the Fremen is directly the product of their interaction with their environment, the, the power hierarchy, the status of like, for example, the sandworms, the way they survive the resources, the water of life, all of those things uh, connected uh, inform their value system and become sacred. And in, through becoming sacred, it generates the metaphors that are embodied into archetypes and create rituals. And these rituals are powerfully illustrated. And I think that's, to me, that's the most genius thing about the, about Dune. And I think Villeneuve very successfully taps into those metaphors Um, without saying, you know, this, this is, you know, I think Star Wars, for example, kind of takes a very mannequin approach. It it says, here's good, here's evil, watch them fight. Dune says, well, this is this value system from this group of people. And they have this value system because they have these resources and this power dynamic. And then the same over here and the same over here. Let's watch them draw into conflict and let's have a, not just a dialectic, I would say like a trialectic or is that even a word? A quadralectic uh, where you have value systems of different. uh, Yeah. And they, and then they, from that emerges a status hierarchy which I think is really interesting. Um, so, so with, with Dune, um, you know, kind of to wrap it up, are, are there any kind of criticisms uh, or plot holes or things you didn't feel like really uh, stuck for you? Uh, like any, anything critical from the analysis? Cause we spent a lot of time trying to understand the story and really, you know, give it the respect it deserves uh, for the development. Is there anything that you feel, like this didn't land for me or this could have been stronger or I wish Villeneuve would have done this rather than this. Um, 
First of all, are you going to be are you going to be exploring Arrival? Arrival was the first episode, actually. Oh, was it? I haven't seen yeah. the first episode yet. Dang. Yeah, no. Uh, at the time of this recording, we haven't released any of the episodes yet. No. So, uh, actually, the next episode it's going to be releasing next Monday. So, dang, dude, I yeah. freaking uh, yeah. We had a I, great me and uh, Adam K. Adam William Cahill. I was just calling Cahill because um, we're both Adams. Uh, he did a really fun deep dive into arrival and the relationship between free will and propaganda, and then actually mostly free will and determinism. And then we did Blade Runner after that, and we delved into uh, oh, you did, you did, Bla- yeah, that's great. Yeah. I'm we're, glad we're, you did. we're doing kind of a Villeneuve series. Oh, good, um, good. And that's which I've, I'm learning a ton. We're going to do Prisoners after that with uh, some other filmmaker friends. Yeah, and, okay, uh, that'll be fun. Well, I, yeah, um, I mean, that's so what, what were you going to say about Arrival as it relates to Dune? Well, I mean, honestly, the art direction of, of Arrival, I love the idea that it was, um, I just, I loved Arrival, uh, yeah. just the language that it spoke to me because, you know, I was raised, my father was a research scientist and he was a chemist and he, um, he spoke to me as a child. Um, he never kind of disrespected me as he always kind of spoke on his own level you know what i mean he spoke Mm -hmm. on his level and i kind of eventually got there and what i loved about that was that that's exactly what these aliens came in and did Mm -hmm. is they were like i would love to uh, we need to teach you some things but first we gotta uh, come together first anyway the um and i think that that is kind of a thing with Villeneuve is the, and forgive me for my pronunciation. Um, uh, I think that's a, a running theme with him particularly is we have to eventually come together somehow. And that's the fascinating thing with Dune. Let's bring it back to Dune. Okay. Cause you asked me a question. Yeah. My question is no, I don't have any criticism because ultimately I'm a filmmaker. I'm not a critic. I think the film worked. It worked for me, and that is my – I don't give thumbs up or anything like that. All I do is say whether it worked or it didn't, and it worked for me. Um, sure, if I would have been doing it, it would have been maybe different, probably not as cool. Yeah, definitely. It would be different no matter you who know? did it. Yeah. But but my whole thing is is – and I think critics have a tendency to live in that area where it's like, well, I would have done it like this. And it's like, yeah. well, I don't know because, again, that's my language. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share with you my language, my – ability to interact with you well let me I, ask you this. are there did you pick up on any plot holes or character contradictions or inconsistencies no because what happened what what i think is brilliant about uh villeneuve is very much there's a band and i don't know if you ever heard of them <laughs> it's kind of an obscure band uh galaxy 500 Really good I example. It. I knew it. I knew you were going to go to the Galaxy 500. It's also a car. But the thing is, it's a beautiful car. But uh, the thing about Galaxy 500 is that, and you'll find this with a lot of really great love songs or even anything really, is they will use words to come together to create imagery that's non-specific. That allows you to interpret it the way you feel. It's like they're putting. It's like a taste. It's, it's like a taste receptor. That's you know these these taste receptors in our tongue. They um, mm-hmm. things will fall into the receptors differently, 
and you'll understand it differently. And that's the language that we speak because I can say, ah, go to hell. And to a child who's never been spoke to that way, their, their receptor hears it differently than yeah. if I'm a, I'm a guy and I'm like, Oh, they got me cheese on my sandwich this time. Go to hell. And he's like, ah, you go to hell. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. um, all of these things, all of this language comes together and it's, and it's all in the receptor of the audience. So my answer is no, I don't have a criticism. <laughs> I don't have any criticism of you. So you, you just tapped into something that I think is one of the most interesting things about Villeneuve, uh-huh. which is, there's a conversation I have, an ongoing conversation I have with another friend of mine named Adam. You have another uh, friend? Another friend. Yeah. I've got two. Like and one two of them is my mom. Shut up. Uh, so, uh, so it's it's this conversation about um, what makes something cinematic, and cinematic is composed, you know, this this idea of like uh, cinematic and story, and that a, in order to be cinematic, it doesn't necessarily have to be storytelling. That cinema is kind of like like music. Music doesn't have to have a narrative to invoke an emotional experience to immerse yeah. you in the music it can just be sounds generating in certain patterns that just evoke a certain feeling Mm -hmm. and you know cinema has its parallel to that where Villeneuve I think in particular is amazing at invoking the music of visual cinema that immerses you but at the same time so there's there's kind of a tendency for some directors to say I don't even care about story I don't care about plot or character I'm only interested in the cinematic experience that visual music that immerses you in the feeling without a narrative. Now I believe the greatest filmmakers have can play the music and can play the music to make you feel that story. So it means something, which is ultimately the whole goal of my cinematic storyboarding class where I, I, talk specifically about this is the language of film grammar and by the way this this class isn't just for storyboard artists it's cinematic language for um in particular well storyboard artists screenwriters uh novelists cinematographers directors this is the language of film and the music of film it's the film grammar uh that uh, that we use and if you apply that film grammar to story and narrative that's when you have the ultimate, what I believe the pinnacle of the cinematic experience is. And like you invoking Galaxy 500 is a perfect example, like that, uh, the song Strange. It's, mm-hmm. it's a song about a guy walking down to a 7-Eleven, grabbing a Coke and going out for a walk and feeling totally disoriented in the world. Yeah. And it's a simple, simple lyrics, beautiful lyrics. One of my favorite songs of all time. Like, Wait a minute, uh, so you know who that is? Shut up. You know that's one of my favorite bands. Hey guys, this is this is a little job at the audience in real quick. Um, the, uh, this is a band that we both have. Not, he introduced me to the Galaxy Five Hundred. I was going to say, "Fuck you!" I introduced yeah, you. No, I met Dean Moreham when I was a little when I was a little kid. I saw them at a, a. It was one of my first concerts that I ever went to. Oh yeah, you were telling and me about this. It was for my birthday. My buddies got me a ticket. Wait a minute, and, that's another friend, right? Or is that the same Adam? 
Okay, I've got a few friends. Uh, now, my buddy Steve and, and Chris and Jeff, uh, they got me a birthday ticket. We went to go see Cocteau Twins and uh, Galaxy 500. And we got to the tickets early. We were kids. We were so young. Like Stranger Things kind of kids. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, no, but, I, yeah, and uh, we, uh, we went to the concert. My buddy Steve bought a T-shirt, put the T-shirt on immediately. This guy comes up to us. And said, "Hey, you like Galaxy 500?" And, we're like, and I was a fanatic, and I was like, "I'm here." Like Galaxy was opening for Cocteau Twins, and I'm like, "I love Cocteau Twins, but I'm here to see Galaxy." Yeah. And he's like, "Oh, what's your favorite song?" And I'm like, "Definitely Strange. Strange is like my mantra. Strange is my anthem." And he's like, "Oh, that's really cool." We go into the concert, and all of a sudden, the guy—I had no idea what Dean Warnham looked like. He walks, the guy we were talking to in the lobby walks out on stage. Me and Steve were like, holy shit, is that the guy we just talked to? <laughs> and he says, hey, uh, this is for that one guy that likes Strange. And they started playing oh, it. Oh, that's so great. It just, oh, tears. I was yeah. so happy. It was one of the most magical. That was one of my first concerts. I was a little kid at the time. And uh, so, yeah, Galaxy is a very, uh, anyway, Total digression. But Seminole. what I love oh, about on, that is you take a second. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, right. But <laughs> you you tying that together, like Galaxy has this way of making you feel something. Mm. The lyrics are, are they're, they're poetry that help you feel something that don't have a specific narrative, yeah. but they do have an emotion. Yeah. And and I think Villeneuve is able to use that kind of visual cinematic move music and turn it into a story. So yeah. I agree with you. I think we got to wrap this up, but I agree with you. I, I honestly, I didn't find any plot holes. I yeah. didn't really have any moments where I'd be like, Oh, he could have done that stronger. I do see people. I understand why people criticize the structure saying, Oh, it just felt truncated. And I don't care because he was giving Dune the time it needed yeah. To build the value, I honestly think, if anything, it was too short. Like, and that's not even a criticism. I just want to live in that world. But I think Villeneuve has the taste, and the editors that he works with really got the pacing, so you really feel those changes, those turns. And I, I, I won't say it's a perfect movie, but I didn't. I, there's nothing that I could see that I that I think he could have changed that I see as a flaw. It's just. The way he approached it, I just think it was absolutely magical. And I just, uh, yeah, I don't have any criticisms. I do believe the, in the importance of criticism to learn from it as writers and artists, not to position ourselves as superior to the artist who did it, not to position ourselves as arbitrators on the quality of an art form. Fuck that. Right. Criticism comes from the term to draw into crisis. Yeah. And to draw into crisis is just to focus on a conflict or something that you feel unresolved with. And I do believe in the value of criticism when it comes to trying to understand something. Um, but I don't, I don't like this trend that criticism has just become a kind of clawing for status through commiseration, right. through complaint. And I don't, I don't care about that. I'm not interested in that because I don't think it actually, I don't think you learn much from that. I think you learn a lot more from trying to understand what the artist was going for, i.e. The, st the story structure and the inner conflict and then really engaging with what worked and what resonated with me and what didn't. And I, you know, Dune is, I think it's, I think it's a fantastic movie. I think it's a brilliant adaptation. I can't wait for Dune too. 
me too. I, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And I think that when there is a criticism like that, uh, a, a negative criticism on something, it's okay. You can not like something. Yeah. But I would never tell someone to net, to not go see something because that's yeah. like saying, Hey, don't go live your life. Okay. Just don't have that experience. Yeah. It doesn't work. It doesn't work, work yeah. with how I think. Well, I mean, that works for the algorithm. Like nothing gets an algorithm going better than complaint and con- condemnation. Right. Because, it, you know, it makes people feel like, I want to feel righteously indignant and I want to feel superior to something. Yeah. And they're using criticism as a weapon. And, you know, yeah. I, I don't I don't care about that conversation. I want a conversation that uh, helps us understand more and that right. I can grow from. I'm selfish. Shine a light. But, uh, all right, that that's our that's our Dune uh, deconstruction, our analysis and deep dive. Uh, thank you so much, Todd. Like you always help me see things from a completely different perspective, uh, and I, yeah, you, <laughs> you always uh, you always challenge me in a way that I'm just like I I you're always coming out of left field for me, which I love. Thanks. Once again, we're going to be doing that uh, live event, the story intensive, story structure intensive, and in, uh, coming up in January. Uh, 2024. So be sure to subscribe to cinematicore.com. That way you'll be first to know when we open the registration for the event. Uh, It's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, thanks so much for watching and go have a great week. You've got a story inside you, a screenplay no one has ever thought of, a novel you've been rolling around inside your coconut for years. Maybe you wrote a few pages and stalled out. Maybe you even wrote a whole draft but don't feel confident it's any good. Or maybe you've been writing draft after draft after draft and slamming into writer's blocks or dead ends or wandering into the weeds. Maybe you just have a few scenes centered around some dope high concept, but you don't know how to develop a character, much less construct a plot that would generate a character arc. Maybe all you have is some simmering spark of an idea. Just a simple desire to write a story. This book is for you. Story by Numbers is a step-by-step process. It gives you the tools to construct a plot that fleshes out your story with characters so real, so compelling, so multi-dimensional, you begin to wonder if you're possessed. Story by Numbers is composed of three parts. Part 1 gives you an overview of the four-act structure, 24 plot points, 8 sequences. Part 2 is a 35-question examination of your story that will guide you through developing and outlining your novel or screenplay into the four-act template. Part 3, well, that's just next-level dope shit. This isn't just another book on theory. Story by Numbers is a diagnostic toolkit for developing and fine-tuning your story. You'll also want to pick up the Story by Numbers workbook. For each story you're writing, you'll need a journal to organize your ideas. The Story by Numbers workbook is a companion notebook that walks you through the process as you outline your story and guides you through each phase of development. From constructing your protagonist's internal drive to plotting conflicts that expose character to composing scenes that drive compelling stories. By the time you've completed your story by number workbook, you'll be ready to finish your manuscript. Whenever you ask a writer what it takes to write a good story, they usually say there are no rules. If you want to know what they really think, ask them about a novel or movie they hate.
Immediately, they'll unload a litany of do's and don'ts so specific, so precise, you'd think they're citing commandments. We all know following a formula is what turns stories into zombified, hacky imitations of better stories. You don't want a formula. You want a process. A method composed of practical principles that breathe life into your concept. You don't want some bullshit magical key. You just want to know what works and what doesn't. Does your story resonate or not? Everyone knows there are no rules for writing a great story. Now that we've gotten that out of the way, here are the rules. Story by numbers. Write more. Better. Faster. Doper.